0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Our scripture reading today is from Mark 12, 38-44. And in His teaching, He said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ.
0: Amen. Well, it is the word of God, and it is more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold. It is sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, uh, we come now uh, to open your word and ask that by your Holy Spirit this word would open our hearts. That as we get into it, uh, you would get this word into us and that we would rejoice, we would repent, we would be renewed, we would rest. Oh Lord Jesus, uh, give us grace to believe uh, the gospel uh, as we see it uh, in this story of this humble woman's offering and moreover in our humble Savior's offering uh, in this word and on this table before us, uh, pointing us to the cross. Lord, we ask all these things in the matchless name of our dear Savior, the seed who crushed the serpent's head and the Alpha and Omega. Amen. Well, we come to the Gospel of Mark, right? You have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. But there's also something really unique about Mark's Gospel that's buried in from a literary perspective. There's a Greek word in the Gospel of Mark that appears 41 times. 41 times. it's, It's in the whole New Testament, maybe around 70 times. But 41 of those times is in the Gospel of Mark alone. And that Greek word is euthus. Euthus appears over and over again, and the word euthus means immediately. Or straight away. Mark is a fast-paced gospel. He's not going to let grass grow under his feet. It's, it's been said that Mark's gospel is basically a passion narrative, the, the, the Greek word pasco, I suffer. It's a narrative of the suffering of Christ with an extended introduction. In other words, Mark is really wanting to rush us to the cross, and he's not giving us a whole lot of details along the way. It's sort of a 30,000 feet flyover of events and stories in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, Mark would have been a master of Twitter had it been around in his day, right? Short little bursts of events and stories and snippets from the life of Jesus, all very intentionally crafted to get us to the cross of of Christ. Very, very fast-paced. But as fast-paced as Mark's gospel is, it's interesting to me that Jesus slows down uh, long enough here to uh, notice a couple of things. Uh, that I guess to most uh, they'd become rather anesthetized to it. He slows down long enough to see a couple of things that, that most people just took for granted and didn't even even notice. One uh, was hypocritical arrogance, the Pharisees and, and all of their self-righteousness and, and hypocritical arrogance. And, and then another, um, a widow woman, uh, not not really to be noticed by anyone, uh, her her estate in life was not much, but but Jesus slows down and notices this humble abandon on her part. How, how, in her humility she's just recklessly abandoned uh, to the Lord that, that he sees all things right it, it should bring conviction you know we, we see in Hebrews chapter four verses 12 to 13 uh, the Word of God is living and active sharper than any double-edged sword a piercing to the division of soul and spirits of, of joints and, and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed the eyes of him to whom we must give. Accounts, so that the no, the notice the notion that Jesus sees all things, it really should bring conviction uh, to to hypocritical arrogant hearts like mine, but but it should also bring comfort, right, to those who would be humbled before uh, the Lord. You know, we read in Matthew ten twenty nine, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? A penny's not worth. Much right? You step over pennies probably from time to time and don't even stoop over to pick them up. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? It brings comfort knowing that that, that our, our our God is always looking over us and, and that he sees everything. It brings conviction, but it brings comfort. You know, that's why we say with the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one What is your only comfort in life and death? And, and the Christian is to reply, uh, My only comfort in life and death is that I, with body and soul, am not in my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, both in life and in death, and that he has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power. Power of the devil and, and so preserves me uh, that apart from the will of my heavenly Father not a hair uh, can fall from my head in fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him Christ by his holy Spirit uh, also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely real willing and ready henceforth to live unto him you know when we have that kind of comfort of knowing uh, that we are under the gracious gaze of Father, Son and Holy Spirit that there's great comfort there for for Living out the, the Christian life, but the uh, the Pharisees, which were you know often on the pointy end of, of Jesus' stick, as it were, they, they were hypocritically arrogant. They were they were full of themselves. Who were the Pharisees? They they really were, for all intents and purposes, the, the the pastors of, of Jesus' day and age. They were the they were the religious leaders. Uh, from, from the time of Jesus until the fall of Jerusalem, about eighty seventy. 70, there were some 6,000 Pharisees uh, in and, and around Jerusalem. They were the religious leaders, the Pharisees. Uh, their name likely derives from the Hebrew root farash, which means to be separate or to be distinct. And, and they made a big deal about being uh, separate and distinct and better than everyone else. Uh, they were arrogant in their self-righteousness. They declared it. They dressed the part, right? I mean, Jesus makes that point here in in verse 38. You know, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. You know, they 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 dressed the part, and and, and they were they were desirous of attention by the way they dressed. Yeah, you know, I remember uh, my wife was. Um, you know, how shall I say this, calling me to account because uh, back in the early 90s, I subscribed to GQ magazine. Now I don't want to offend anyone here today who subscribes to GQ magazine. You do you, right? But back in the early 90s, I subscribed to GQ, and uh, you know, I kind of got into fashion for a while. You're probably thinking, yeah, what happened since then? But anyway, um, I remember I used to go to Christ Community, and I don't know how many of you were there then, and it's going to embarrass me to death if somebody was there and said, yeah, I saw this take place. But back in the early days of Christ Community in downtown Franklin, this was probably be about 1991, maybe 1992, along in there, and I had this electric blue double-breasted suit. I mean, this thing came with a battery pack. It was, it was electric blue, and I was so proud of that electric blue double-breasted suit. And, uh, and I had this canary yellow shirt. Man, this canary—you're talking about pop, man. This thing just popped off this electric blue, uh, you know, double-breasted suit. Well, back in the day, you know, Christ community, man, people were parking in yards, sitting in windowsills. The, the choir loft was basically just the overflow room. And so, one Sunday morning, it was particularly crowded, and I wound up setting up in the, uh, in the choir loft, and uh, we got to this point where we had kind of a, a passing of the peace, as we did just a, a few minutes ago here. And I'm standing up there, and people are all waving at me and pointing, pointing to me. and I'm thinking, they can't resist it. Right and 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 I so I get up and I come to the edge of the stage. So I just start waving at people. I'm not making this. Start waving at people because they're waving at me and they, and they're pointing. I'm thinking my people. They they love me and they kept pointing and then they're laughing and I said I'm giving them great joy and uh, they they're pointing because uh, I, my fly was down and the tail of that bright yellow um, shirt was coming out my zipper. And I'm just sitting here just waving at everyone in more ways than one. And um, so, so, here are the Pharisees. They dressed the part. They wanted attention, right? They, they wanted attention. They, they were ambitious for the adulation of people, verse 38. They, they were bent on self-promotion. Look at verse 39. They wanted the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, right? They, they would have been all about selfies with the sexiest people right? They would have been the original humble braggers on, on Instagram. They, they were greedy. Look at verse 40. They devour widows' houses. Now, here's what's particularly um, repulsive about this. Widows, uh, in this day and age, if, if there was no provision made for them, uh, they, they had few prospects on making it for themselves. They were particularly gullible. Right in, in this society, you know, most every decision w- would have been made by men, and they were particularly susceptible to, to manipulation. And so here are these trusted religious leaders using the word of God as a wedge to gain advantage over women and just fleece the sheep, as it were, and, 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 and just leave their houses in, in ruin and take their finances. And, and for a pretense, they make long prayers— and then some of the most chilling words in the whole Bible. They will receive the greater condemnation. This hypocritical arrogance. You know, why, why do we default to arrogance? Well, a, a couple of reasons. One, we don't take God seriously. David Wells, a theologian at Gordon-Conwell, uh, Theological Seminary in Boston back in the day wrote a book called God in the Wasteland. And he said in God in the Wasteland, uh, he spoke of the weightlessness of God. And by that, he was not speaking of God as a spirit, though we certainly read in John 4 that God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. He was not talking about the non-corporality or non-physicality of of God our Father or, or the Holy Spirit, but he was talking about the fact of the weightlessness of God, that God rests inconsequentially on us. We do not feel the weightiness of God. We do not take uh, God—we do not take Him seriously. So so we default to arrogance because we don't take God seriously, and we default to arrogance because we take ourselves way too seriously. John Calvin, who lived from 1509 to 64, said this, "...again it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating Him to scrutinize himself." For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. For because all of us are inclined by nature to hypocrisy, a kind of empty image of righteousness in place of righteousness itself abundantly satisfies us. So, you gotta ask the question why, why is our spirituality? Why are the things of God? Why is religion um, such a seedbed for arrogance? Well, here's the reality the fallout of the fall, um, you know, remaining in dwelling sin uh, does take root in in our spirituality, in the way we view church, the way we view the, the religious life. And, and and please don't be off put by me using the word religion. Religion's a biblical word. James one twenty seven says there's actually a religion that is pure, which you know, conversely, you know, the, the, the presupposition there is there's a religion that's not pure. Right? He's stating there's a religion that's pure because he knows very good and well there is a religion that is not pure. Jesus is indicting a religion that is not pure among the Pharisees, and he's going to contrast that with the pure religion of this poor widow woman. But James says, a religion that, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their time of affliction, and to keep oneself unspotted uh, by the world. Uh, but you know, religion has been you know perceived in so many ways. Uh, Karl Marx lived from eighteen eighteen to eighty three. Wrote a, a rather weighty tome uh, on the criticism of Hegelian uh, philosophy of law, which I know sounds like a great beach read to you, but. Um, he he says in that book that religion has become the thing that the oppressed classes cling to. They kind of make up religion to comfort the reality that they are oppressed and they are beat down. And and it is there that he refers to—maybe you've heard this before—religion is the opium of the masses, or religion is the opium. We just turn to religion to sort of dull the pain or give ourselves uh, the illusion that we have some control over over our surroundings. you know, religion is perceived in so many ways. Thomas Edison says this: "So far as religion of the day is concerned, it is a damned fake. Religion is all bunk. All Bibles are man-made." He said, "The great trouble." He said this in a friend uh, said this to a friend of his named Joseph Lewis in a conversation. He said, "The great trouble." is that the preachers get the children from six to seven years of age, and then it is almost impossible to do anything with them, incurably religious. That is the best way to describe the mental condition of so many people, incurably religious. Well, I actually agree uh, in a certain sense with Edison. We are incurably religious. Now, I don't agree with him for the same reasons that he said, right? Um, we are incurably religious. Why is that? Because we are made in the image of a God who woos us and welcomes us. And we are always hearing the call of home. You know, it was St. Augustine who lived from 354 to 430 who said in the first chapter, the opening section of the Confessions, O Lord, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Right? It was C.S. Lewis who said, God cannot give you a happiness outside of himself because there is no such thing. Right, we are incurably religious because we are unavoidably created in uh, the image of God, undeniably created in the image of God, and, and 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 that echo from home is is always there, and so we're always trying to to uh, you know erect idols. It was Calvin who said in his commentary on Acts two that our hearts are fabricum idolorum. Our hearts are idol factories, and we're just cranking out idols and bowing down to those idols and demanding that our idols satisfy us or, or give us meaning or, or ease the pain, you know, whatever, whatever levers we pull to medicate, right? Those things become our gods. Why is that? Because we are. I mean, Edison was right. We are incurably religious, uh, but Augustine was on to the cure. God himself is the cure. Um, he is the supply. For that desire and, and that need, um, yet we default to kind of a, uh, a hypocritical arrogance and a self-righteousness and uh, pretense and, and that sort of thing, sort of becoming uh, pious posers as it were. Uh, we, we struggle even as believers uh, in Christ to really believe the gospel that the good news is really as good as the Bible makes it out to be, and, and we struggle because we can 't let go of the of the notion uh, that, that God just might let go of us if we don 't do enough good deeds to outweigh our bad deeds and get God satisfied and keep God satisfied with us I mean we, we hear we hear the gospel proclaimed by by Moses right deuteronomy thirty verse six the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and in the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and soul and, and you may live. We hear the gospel preached by Jeremiah in Lamentations 3, to 24. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will, I will wait on, on him. We, we hear the gospel from Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I am lowly in heart. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. We hear the gospel from Paul in Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? We, we hear the gospel from the likes of, of Martin Luther, who said, when the devil uh, accuses me and tells me what a terrible sinner I am, he comforts me greatly because Christ died for sinners, right? We, we hear the gospel. Right? We read the gospel. We hear the gospel from this pulpit on Sundays. We taste the gospel at this table on, on Sundays. Yet, yet we're not willing to surrender, uh, as it were, our narrative to the narrative of the gospel. So we recreate the narrative of the gospel ever so slightly so that it really is no longer good news, but what I call red zone religion or gridiron grace. Jesus has done enough to get me to the 20-yard line. Jesus has got me in the red zone. Now I'll take it from here. All right. Jesus, yes, is all about grace. Jesus has gotten me into the red zone. He's gotten me into uh, the red zone, and uh, he's done all that for me. I couldn't have done it without you, Jesus. High five. I'll take it from here. I mean, to be sure, I still need Jesus on my team. He's going to block for me, but ultimately now it's up to me to sort of punch it across uh, the, the goal line. Um, it's red zone religion, man. That, that's gridiron grace, which is no grace no gospel at all you know Paul said in Galatians chapter 1 verses 8 and 9 if anyone preaches to you even an angel from heaven a gospel other than that which you've received let him be anathema in the Greek eternally condemned you see here's the problem I don't need Jesus to get me into the red zone I'm in the dead zone left to myself I need him to do for me what I can't do for myself I need him to take me from one end zone to the other if he drops me off at the 20 yard line there I will stay because apart from Jesus, right, taking away my no heart and giving me a yes heart, apart from Jesus carrying me as it were across the finish line, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeless. Even if I have an impressive religious resume, in fact, look at look at Philippians, Philippians chapter three. And Paul, listen. If anyone had an impressive religious resume, it it was the Apostle Paul, and in the letter to the Philippians. Um, Look there, beginning at verse 2. What does Paul say? "'Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also.'" In other words, if anyone could have gotten into the the religious red zone as it were and gotten themselves across the finish line, if that was the way of things, it was me, Paul is saying. Check out my religious resume. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I persecuted the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Whether I've got an impressive religious resume or not, whether I've got a lot to give or just a couple of copper coins, I consider everything my whole life. I consider everything loss for the sake of Christ. Look at verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Let me ask you this, is knowing Christ, in your estimation, of surpassing worth relative to everything else? I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Very, very polite word there in our English translations, right? You probably know if you've heard preachers comment on this passage before. The word there, um, it ain't rubbish. It's it's not. I um, I, I I wish I had the the bravery and the gumption of a Stacy Davis to just tell you what this word actually means in English. Can I, can I get a witness, sister? This word in Greek is skibalon. Okay, and so uh, the the proper translation of this would be uh poo and i'm not talking about winnie the um the 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 translation here would be uh paul is actually saying my religious my own righteousness my self righteousness i count it as a pile of yeah so I count it as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. In other words, Paul is saying, I don't want this— pile of crap for my own righteousness. I want what Luther called justitia aliena, an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of me that must be given to me by Christ. And he says this impressive religious resume, it's just a pile of fertilizer. Um, when I was a kid, you know, I told some of the brothers, a couple of the guys here um, at Music Row come to a Bible study that I do on Wednesday mornings at, at Old Hickory Uh, 6 30 a.m. called biscuits and bibles and uh, I shared a story recently uh with the brothers there uh when when I was a little boy right when I was a little guy like I don't know like how old is this guy on on the third row here How, how old are you men eight or I was about your age all right when I was about your age, uh, I got new clothes maybe twice a year. Once was for Easter Sunday, I'd get new clothes, and then I would get new clothes at the beginning of Vacation Bible School. Other than that, all year my clothes came from garage sales. But Vacation Bible School was starting, and I got some new clothes. Now back in the 70s, we had a thing at Sears and Roebuck called Geranimals. Can I get a witness? Anybody remember Garanimals? There are two or three of you, okay. This illustration is going to be a home run. For the rest of you, geranimals. What were geranimals? Geranimals were clothes that had little animal tags on them, and that's the way you would know how to match. And so, when I would dress myself, I would know how to match because if my shirt had a little tag with a giraffe on it and the shorts had a little tag with a giraffe, I knew those, those went together right? You wouldn't wear like a shirt that had a giraffe tag and a, a pair of pants that had a zebra. No, you wouldn't do that. So, it would help us learn how to match giranimals. Well, I got a brand new outfit of giranimals and a brand new pair of tennis shoes on our way to VBS, on our way to vacation Bible school. On our way there, my mama said, we got to stop by your uncle's house out in the country on our way to church. I got to go in and see him about something. And when I get there, you stay in the car. Don't you dare get out of the car, And what did I do? When the law came, it exposed sin, as Paul says. Before the law, I did not know what sin was. But when the law fell on me, don't you dare get out of the car. She parked, went inside the house. I got out of the car. I went across the street. My uncle had this incredible barn across the street. Animals of all kinds, cows, goats, chickens horses, had a donkey, he had every conceivable animal you can imagine. He had crops, he had this huge garden out behind, uh, out behind the, um, the barn. And, and so, I, I go there to the barn, I go out behind the barn, and there was this glorious mountain, this glorious hill. And so, I mounted that hill, I climbed up, the hill was probably about this tall, and I started and I climbed up to the top of that hill, and I declared myself king of the hill. Chickens, roosters, goats, cows, none would challenge me. Interesting thing about the top of that hill, it was a little softer and mushier than down at the bottom. And when I got to the top of that hill, I began to sink down into that mount, and I could not extricate myself from uh, the—well, you know what I'm about to say, right? So I'm stuck, right? I'm stuck in my sin, and then I hear the voice of the law. David Owen Filson, where are you? I told you not to get out of that car. And I knew that was the voice of the judge. Uh, there I was, my brand new tennis shoes, my brand new geranimals, and I am sinking down in this pile that had become at one point my source of pride, right? It commended me to all the barnyard animals. It was my source of strength. It had lifted me up and elevated me, right? Just like Paul, I had an impressive pedigree. It elevated me. It lifted me up over everyone else. The Pharisees, they were lifted up over everyone else. Yet the very thing that was my source of pride, my righteousness as it were, um, it stank and it caused me to sink down. The voice of the judge I heard and I knew at that moment that there was condemnation for me, right? My mama, all 109 pounds of her came around the backside of the barn and there I was stuck waist deep in fertilizer that my uncle would use to spread out over his his garden. And uh, the judge had to come and do for me what I could not do for myself. She had to crawl up on top and get into the muck and the mire herself and pull me out. Now, there were consequences for my sin, but not condemnation. And, And that's the good thing to know about the gospel. We face... We face the consequences of our sin at times, but there is no condemnation, Romans 8, 1, for those who are in Christ. And one of the things from which we need to be uh, so immediately extricated is not simply what is obviously our unrighteousness that we could point to and say, yes, that stinks. But moreover, the things that we point to to say, that commends me and lifts me up over you. But it is at the same time as big a poly fertilizer as as the rest. And so what's the answer uh, to this? You know, hypocritical arrogance, this Phariseeism in all of us, it's, it's what Jesus sees here in Mark 12. Turn back, the humble abandon of this woman who gave everything. The court of the women there at the temple, there were 13 brass receptacles shaped like trumpets, metal. They were, they were there to be seen and uh, there so that a sound would be made when you made your offering. Offerings were heard and they were seen. She drops in two copper coins. Did anyone notice? Or maybe, maybe she was ridiculed by some for putting in so little, right? Putting two copper coins, text tells us worth about a penny, right? How many of you over the last three or four weeks have been walking through a parking lot and, um, you know, you walk over a quarter, you're probably going to reach down and pick it up. Right? A quarter's just 25 pennies, but you walk over a penny, you might let it go. You might just walk over it because pennies beneath you. You might not walk, walk by, you just walk right on by and not pick it up. Right? I remember when I was a little boy, mama sent me to the market basket, a little convenience store up near our house to get a loaf of bread. And when I was in there, I'm walking down the aisle and I found a tin spot on the floor. Angels broke through and began to sing a $10 bill. I don't know that I had ever held a $10 bill in my hand. I took it to the counter and told the lady at the store, I said, somebody's dropped this. She said, well, there's no one else here in the store, but you, this is yours. And so, I'm I driving, or driving, riding back on my bicycle to the house to tell mama, hey, I found a $10 bill. And she said, what are you going to do with that? I said, well, what can I? She said, it's yours. What do you want to do with it? So, I made a beeline right back for Market Basket. And I remember going back to Mar- Market Basket, riding back to my house like a boss. I bought a pouch of Big League Chew, an Icy, and a stack of comic books, right? But what, what I could do with $10, even to this day, I, I remember the thrill I had in finding that $10 bill you find a penny on the floor, you know, but not that big a deal. And, and so this poor widow came, and she puts in two copper coins, which make a penny, verse 32 says. Um, oftentimes this passage will be preached in kind of a moralistic fashion along these lines. Doesn't matter how much or how little you got to give, every little bit counts when you're doing God's work. Well, I suppose there's truth to that, but that misses the point, right? God doesn't need your money. Think about it. The most famous offering in the history of the world, the most famous donation to the work of God was two copper coins. There are people who have been blessed and enabled to give massive sums of money to the work of God throughout history, but the most famous offering ever was two copper coins. And Jesus said she'd given more than anyone else. It's so counterintuitive. Really it's, it's what Luther called the Theologia Crucis. The theology of the cross, the way up's the way down. That God himself comes to us in weakness. He comes to us in poverty and and meets our needs. What was it about her? This this willingness to risk it all, to risk everything she had, to to give it all to the Lord. It's sort of like Mary with her expensive jar of perfume in in John 12, 1-8, when she puts the perfume on Jesus' feet. And, And then you talk about humble abandon, lets down her hair, which a woman did not do except in the presence of her husband, and wipes his feet with her hair. Such humble abandon. Or what about in Luke chapter 8, verses 43 to 48? The woman with the flow of blood, ostracized, unclean. She knew better than to get around the crowd. Yet what was it about Jesus that she would risk being ostracized even further, just to press through the crowd and touch the hem of Jesus' garment? Or what about what we read in, in John chapter 19, verses 38 to 42? Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus outing themselves, as it were, as disciples of Christ, coming for a corpse, the body of Jesus, which certainly would have made them unclean, yet just this humble reckless abandon of just giving all and risking all to be associated with Jesus. You see, it's the gospel that fuels this kind of humility. There's no no other way to be truly humbled than to encounter the unraveling and restorative effect that the gospel alone can do in our lives. No other way to be truly humbled and to encounter the unraveling and restorative effect that the gospel alone can have in our lives. And, and here's the interesting thing. Gospel not only fuels humility, but the cultivation of humility by the power of the Holy Spirit then creates an ongoing appetite for the gospel. Again, uh, St. Aurelius Augustine said that the, the three most important characteristics of a believer, three, I'll start, I'll start with number three and work my way back to number one. Number three humility. Number two, humility. Number one, humility. Colossians 3.12 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, clothe yourselves as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is the Christian fashion statement, and all of it's grounded in what we read in the first four verses of Colossians 3. You've been raised with Christ. That has been done for you. Now clothe yourselves, dress like one who has been raised by Christ, redeemed by Christ. I mean, we think about what we're going to wear everywhere we go. I thought about what I was going to wear this morning. In fact, I've got this new sport coat that I'm kind of fond of. In fact, my wife says, hey, look, you need to give it a rest because you've been wearing it everywhere. But I was thinking about wearing this new sport coat and this little understated gray bow tie, but then I thought, hey, this is Christ's Presbyterian Music Row, and I need to kind of come, you know, Croft casual, right? I, I, need, I need to do a little little uh, Stacy Croft casual here. So we think about what we're going to wear, the impression we're going to make by our, our fashion statement. And Paul says, look, here's your fashion statement. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. We're only going to be that way when we realize, all I am is Christ. All I have is Christ. Like, like this poor widow, just utterly abandoned. She, gave, she had nothing to sustain herself, and she gave it all to the Lord, right? Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. but Christ who lives in me and the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Calvin says, we are not our own. Let us therefore not set it as our goal to seek what is expedient for us according to the flesh. We are not our own. And insofar as we can, let us forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we belong to God. Let us therefore live for Him and die for Him. We belong to God. Let His wisdom and will therefore rule all our actions. We belong to God. Let all the parts of our life accordingly strive toward Him as our only lawful goal. That's what the Lord wants, is our hearts. Isaiah 66 too, right? But this is the one the Lord says to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy toward one another, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Imagine, imagine if that's what could be said of this place. And it is what is said of this place. But, but fan that flame, right? Fan that flame that, that we would have unity of mind, be sympathetic toward one another, have brotherly love, tender hearts, and humble minds, <laughs> right? J.C. Ryle is the greatest thing that ever came out of Liverpool. J.C. Ryle The Anglican bishop lived from 1816 to 1900. Now, I know that there are those of you who would disagree that Ryle was the greatest thing to ever come out of Liverpool. Uh, Some great things have come out of Liverpool, but those four are second best. J.C. Ryle says this, Ah, brethren, when you and I have nothing we can call our own, but sin and weakness, there is surely no garment that becomes us so well as humility. Humility. And Jesus noticed this woman comes up with humble abandon, just humbly comes up and gives her all. It wasn't about the two copper coins. She gave her heart. You know, I've already started listening to Christmas music. Don't judge me. Started listening to Christmas music close to a month ago, and we went to Christmas Village last weekend. So the the season is, uh, was was a couple of weekends ago? When was it we went? It was last weekend. See, it was last weekend. Anyway, we're going to have a little argument, my wife and I, and, and I'm humbly going to prevail. Now, anyway, so it was two weekends ago. Anyway, we go to Christmas Village. The, the season has begun, right? And, and maybe you're like me. You're just looking forward to Christmas music. Have you, ever, have you ever really paid attention to the lyrics of In the Bleak Midwinter? In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moon. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow snow on snow in the bleak midwinter long ago our God heaven cannot hold him nor earth sustain heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign in the bleak midwinter a stable place sufficed the Lord God Almighty Jesus Christ now you know you know Given up the, the, the reality that more than likely Jesus wasn't born in the bleak midwinter, all right, stylistically work with me here, but here, here is what really is accurate. Enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, breastful of milk and a manger full of hay enough for him whom angels fall before the ox and ass and camel which adore angels and archangels may have gathered there cherubim and seraphim thronged the air but his mother only in her maiden bliss worshipped the beloved with a kiss what can I give him poor as I am if I were a shepherd I would bring a lamb if I were a wise man I would do my part Yet what I can give, I give him. I give him my heart. Poor as I am, right? Yet Jesus is the one who became poor. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Made himself poor, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. He humbled himself when he was found in appearance as a man, and humbled himself to death, even the death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him, and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, on the earth, above the earth, or under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. He humbled himself. He made himself poor, right? And he is, right? the good shepherd. Right? If I were a shepherd, I'd bring a lamb. He is the good shepherd, and he lays down his life for the sheep and will never let go of you, John 10 says. And he didn't bring a lamb. He is the lamb. John 1 29, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If I were a wise man, I'd do my part. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Colossians 2 verse 3. What I'd give him, I'd give him my heart. Yet, he takes away your no heart, and he gives you a yes heart in the gospel that is preached, in the gospel that you are about to taste. He gives you his heart at this table, and he says, now, give, you, give me your heart. And so we're going to come here as, as Pastor Bing comes and um, encourages us, and I, and I want you to come to this table, and, and before you ask, what can I give Jesus, taste what he has, is, and ever will give to you. Gracious Father, we come thankful that this gospel is true. Uh, Sink this word uh, deeply into our hearts. Uh, We would come, Lord. Uh, We would come and um, plead for grace for this kind of humble, reckless abandon before you. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love you. Um, Would you take these ordinary elements of bread and wine, which remain bread and wine, but don't let us remain the same. Strengthen us and grow us. Help us to believe the gospel, for we ask it in the matchless name of Jesus, our shepherd, our lamb. Amen.